Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so delighted today to be talking about the IFC film Hold Your Fire. We are joined by Stefan Forbes, who is the director, producer, editor, and cinematographer of the movie. And I was actually really interested in, in the genesis of your interest and in the initial connection to this story, because it, it didn't actually come from a place of, of knowing this particular story that you're capturing in this documentary, but actually wanting to make a film about conflict resolution and someone saying, well, have you heard about this story? Have you read this book? And I was so fascinated in what it was about conflict resolution that you were really interested in trying to explore within the documentary form that led to this. Yeah, you know, I'm a huge fan of those 70s gritty New York stories like French Connection, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, you know, these multicultural things that, you know, Sidney Lumet directed this stuff. And it also has a personal, you know, echo with my family history. My mom's whole community was kidnapped by the Russians and taken to a work camp near Siberia, like they're doing in Ukraine right now. She grew up with that elemental childhood trauma that so many people carry around. And we've learned that that's transmitted epigenetically to the kids, the way parents react to stress and anxiety. And being in America, a country built on violence as cops lament in my film, you know, with slavery and the belief that we have to dominate each other. A lot of people in this country are carrying around trauma, even the people that are doing the dominating, it dehumanizes you. So we're living in this stressed out, anxious society that doesn't know how to talk to each other that I often, you know, address in my work, like my last film, Boogeyman, about left and right in America. We're storming the damn capital right now. So I want us to know, is there a solution? Is there another side to this? How do we work against violence? How do we find a healing and other ways of interacting? And I didn't really know if there was an answer out there. I've been on a 10 year journey to try to find that story. I went to the Rift Valley in Kenya filming cattle herders who carry Kalashnikovs on their back weapons that have flooded into Africa through the United States and other Western countries. I spoke to conflict resolution due to mediate between Sunni and Shiite clerics in Iraq. I was looking for the story and I found it in my adopted hometown of New York City, like back where I started. So it was a crazy journey to even find this story. And, and it was a crazy journey as well, even just in terms of finding the people who were involved in, in this particular incident in this night in 1973. And, you know, what, what I appreciate about the film is that you've really sought out voices from every single side of the experience. You know, you have police officer who was there, you have the men who went in to perform the initial robbery and you look at what led them there that evening. You've got conversations about hostages, but also even the child of one of the hostages of what did that mean to our family, you know, to have had that experience and what did it do to my parent? Um, and, and it sounds like there was a really fascinating trajectory in terms of just trying to track people down to the point where even with Shahib, you know, you initially thought that he had passed away because you read a eulogy that sounded like it was him. And, and so it was fascinated in terms of, of just that journey of, of research to really find everybody. And if it was something that was so important to you from the beginning to have all these voices, or if it was people going, oh, you know who else you should talk to? Like, you should talk to this person. Yeah, you know, when I brought on Fab Five Freddy, it's just part of how you live. You know, you have a community of friends that you talk to about stuff you're working on. And I was like, 
now, Fred, did you ever hear about this? And he's like, yeah, it was near, you know, my home in Bed-Stuy. That's where I grew up. You should call, talk to my uncle. I went out and had lunch. And Fab is from this tradition of like Brooklyn intellectuals. Max Roach, the great drummer, is his godfather. You know, so there were many ways into the story. And I sort of never just want to take that one cliched good guys and bad guys story. You know, I think with race in America, a lot of times, it's so hard for us to talk about because we have such a binary viewpoint. It's good and bad. It's black and white. It's cop and criminal. And I wanted to chop that up a little and really look beyond those labels that divide us and get the human side of the story, which is what's interesting to me. Again, it's easy to pay lip service to pluralism in America. It's what our society does. And I had a little more sympathy for our politics when I actually tried to weave everyone's competing narratives into one timeline in the avid, it never worked. It was incredibly hard. And I kept saying like, I thought I knew how to make a movie. It gave me a little sympathy for how hard it is as a nation to make sure everybody's voice is heard. And especially because I don't really use narrators in my work. So it took forever to incorporate these very competing and conflicting viewpoints. You could have made the Sidney Lumet film about cops, but I wanted to do that 70s gritty thriller in a 2020 way where, where we have competing narratives and there's a cultural richness there that, you know, in my mind just makes the work better. And did you have a sense of, you know, the extent to which there were going to be competing narratives and literal details where, you know, different perspectives remember something so specifically different. And what were the challenges that came with editing that together in a, in a way that's still cohesive for the audience? Like we still understand the story being told, even though we're hearing three different perspectives of a particular moment. No, I had no idea that I was continually shocked in these interviews. I thought the store owner who tries to escape with all the hostages and who's like busy like loading his nine millimeter and he's planning to kill Shuaib and the other gunmen, you know, I was shocked that he didn't hate them and that he had empathy for them. And I learned making this film that a lot of harmed parties in, you know, violent crimes don't want somebody locked up forever and the key thrown away. They realize that those people do come back to the community and, it doesn't necessarily hold them accountable for what they've done and it doesn't help their families in the neighborhood. People are really often want more restorative justice where they can talk to the person who harmed them, ask them questions, why'd you do this? And hold them accountable and they can make some kind of reparations. Uh, so I learned a lot about restorative justice and I was shocked that a lot of people had more empathy than I would have thought. I also found out really crazy things like that these men who had been maligned as cop killers for 50 years probably didn't do the crime. They didn't fire the bullet that killed that NYPD officer. And that was shocking to me. And cops told me, you know, we were really good at forensics. If we don't find the bullet, that usually means something. You know what I mean? And I'm like, uh, I think I know what you mean. And they're like, yeah, it was friendly fire. And I'm like, what? So 
you know, so many times we get the, the news of the day from the media, but that, that's not really examined. And I'm also a screenwriter in Hollywood, so we're taught to do our own research in these true life stories and really talk to people and find out what really happened behind the headlines. And with the fact that you are literally telling a story that is about conflict resolution, the necessity of asking questions and really listening to answers and considering different perspectives, how did that inform the way that you were approaching a lot of these interviews? Because you're the person behind the camera interviewing every single person that we hear talking, that we see on screen, um, you know, and how did that kind of influence the space that you wanted to create for them and the types of questions that you would be asking to draw the story out and really create a space where they felt comfortable sharing all of this? Yeah, it's such a great question, you know, just from my family's history, I know that a lot of people are carrying trauma around. Uh, I was amazed at hearing the stories of some of these cops where they have all this unacknowledged grief and trauma, and that's what leads directly to violence. And I had to create basically a safe space for them to open up because we're taught the man code in society. You know, that's a lot of what the film's about. We're taught that you have to dominate interactions that you need to never lose. Guys say, you know, we became a cop for victory, you know, to win. I had to challenge that narrative with them to go back in my community of melanin challenged, toxic white dudes and, 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 delve into that with them. How's like my job? I grew up with those people. And I've seen the violence that like this white patriarchal thinking leads to. It was fun to interrogate it and talk to them. And they'd be like, you know, hey, first you grieve, then you want to go bust someone's head. That's how we handle it. And I learned that the only PTSD therapy that most cops ever get is from a guy named Jack Daniels. That's how they solve their problem, drinking. So these narratives of wounding and trauma came out from everyone there. And as a filmmaker, the people are trusting you to tell their story. You have to be empathetic. You have to make space for that. And you want to leave them feeling as many of the hostages and, and everyone else does that. This film is finally their chance to tell their story after so long. And there's a, there's a lightening of the burden we carry. And this is kind of the way forward for our society. We got to learn how to talk to each other. And I was also interested in, in that regard as well into what a lot of the communication looked like before you sat down on camera. You know, were, were there people that had particular questions about what type of story you wanted to tell, how you wanted to tell the story, you know, were you telling it objectively or with a particular perspective? And, and was, was there anyone that was, you know, a little hesitant for, for valid reasons to step into the story that kind of once they talked to you felt very comfortable sitting down as well? Yeah, that's a great question too. I think it's a lot of how you approach people and how you assure them that you're making a story where you're going to let them talk. You're not going to edit them and make misleading little sound bites. We want to hear your truth, you know, and I try to approach people in that spirit and they Frankly, they always want to talk. I'm kind of the person that like, if we go on a, you know, to a school event with other kids' parents, my wife was always like, they told you what? You know, people just like want to tell me stuff because I think it's so rare in our lives that people really listen and are actually curious. So when people find that, they want to open up. They're carrying around all these stories and we all kind of want to be heard. So people were pretty eager and they seem to feel that the film 
tells their stories honestly. A lot of cops really don't agree with Shuaib Rahim's take on this. You know, some hostages don't agree with the way the cops saw that stuff. There's a huge amount of conflict in our society. And I want to re reflect that honestly in the film. And I always tell people, you know, it's going to be like, you know, you're in New York, you're at a bar, you're having a couple of drinks and you might get in a heated discussion with people. That's what we want. We want that cultural richness. And if we try to avoid the topics of race and crime and culture with people and just put a little black square on our Twitter and show this performative allyship, it doesn't move our society forward. My goal was to create a messy conversation, a complicated one, the kind we need to have about race where White people don't just let ourselves off the hook with this jargon about, you know, the carceral state and our allyship, but we are vulnerable and open and we try to learn and we chop it up a little. And ultimately, I think if there is that empathy, if there is that sense of atonement and healing, then film itself can become a kind of restorative justice for all these crazy violent traumas that we're carrying around as a society. It's also a story that as much as every individual in the in the sub in the story and in the film has their own perspective, the media also took a particular perspective and and also misrepresented a lot of details as well at the time and in anything that's been spoken about since. And and so how did you kind of approach research with using media coverage of it, but also trying to keep it very objective and you know, really looking at also, what are the images that the media captured that are going to be helpful in terms of how we want to capture and tell the story on screen at the same time? It's weird, you know, making these movies. I always say I'm not going to do another one because it's so much work. You're like looking for scraps of film and these old video transfers are murky and terrible. And every rough cut I show people, they're like, this movie sucks. I can't see what the hell's going on, you know. I can't hear these old radio clips you found. Nothing's ever good. And then when you finally spend like $100,000 and blow it up to crisp, gorgeous 4K, people are like, oh my God, it's like, you know, the French connection. I'm like, I tried to tell you, but <clears throat> it's, you know, it's snippets. It's finding the film that was never even shown. And you're like, wow, this goes here. And this is another view of that. And you learn from people what really happened. And it's just about, you know, a great screenwriter as well does their research and you really work to tell a human story. You know, again, what I think is so powerful about film is that I can show this footage of Shuaib talking about the violence in his community, growing up in Brownsville, the home of like Mike Tyson and Riddick Bowe and the knuckle game, the heavyweight boxers. It was all violence surrounding him all the time. And he went to get police protection when people started threatening his life and he couldn't find that protection. So he went to guns the way America has taught us to do. And frankly, us in Hollywood put that message out a lot of the time. That violence is redemptive. You know, in that third act of the movie, you take up arms and you solve your problems. Here's a man who found himself in a gun store surrounded by weapons and, and, and unlimited ammunition, and he was less safe than he'd ever been in his life. So being able to tell his story and just showing raw footage to the cops on camera, which I did, you know, they were overwhelmed. They were crying about somebody who they would see as a bad guy. 
that's what they call them, the bad guys and the good guys. I'm trying to break through those labels that we often see in the media. They were called cop killers. You know, there isn't always that room for depth, but in a feature film, we can use these really powerful weapons of shaping a story in an arc to create a nuanced character. And ultimately we can't help but be empathetic toward them. And that's the power of film. There's also a lot of tension that comes within the story and it's not, it's not a manufactured tension. You know, I say that in terms of, of like what's going to happen next is, is a genuine, you know, true fact for fact exploration of, of the way that tension was building and growing continuously in this. Was it important to you that you really capture and, and reflect that? Or did that very naturally come from just the stories that people were telling you on screen and the fact that there is a natural tension to just storytelling in that form as well? No, it is not natural or easy, and that's a great question. I mean, we worked so hard on structuring that anxiety into the film. A thriller is the hardest genre to work in because it's so technical. And if you lose that tension, you lose everything. It gets boring or you start repeating beats, you know, and, and it falls apart. I worked really closely with an amazing composer, Jonathan Sanford, and we were lucky enough to get my friend John Beasley, who's a Grammy-winning keyboardist and composer, to bring his trio into the studio and improvise live to picture, which you see very rarely in film. And we would structure these improvisations with him, and I talked to him about the characters, and we're trying to build tension here, and this is the feel, and we worked so hard to, to you gotta raise the tension and at times you have to actually ratchet it down because if you continually raise it with music or with editing, you know, again, you, you wear people's nerves out. So to go for 94 minutes and build that kind of tense anxiety is, is an incredible goal. And I feel like in the end with the music and with the editing and with this footage, which is terrifying. It's people about to lose their lives that, that we got there. And it's hard to do in a documentary too, but I believe, you know, I don't want to just go out there and preach to people. We've all seen these kumbaya docs about how we all have to get along. I believe you got to hide the medicine a little and tell a great story that people get enraptured in because you learn things emotionally and on an unconscious level. And that's a really powerful way of learning as well. There's also a lot of use on screen of, of archival photographs like you were, you were talking about a little bit before. Are the challenges that come with trying to tell a story where that's so much of the visual medium and yet still make it feel dynamic because even just the act of, of zooming in on one of those photographs and, and kind of bringing our eye to a particular focal point is, is creating a dynamic element to it as opposed to it just being a static image on screen, which you use quite frequently. Yeah, I mean... I've ended up editing most of my own stuff, but I have this incredible team of award-winning editors that I will send them a cut and I'll just say, tear this to shreds. No, I'd rather you do it than some critic later on. And so people are brutal with me and they're like, this section's boring, cut that, you know, why are you showing this picture? And what I've learned great documentary filmmakers often do is segregate the film footage, the archival, and photographs, like if you're gonna build a sequence, build it all with photographs. 
Show me three or four. Push in somewhere. Lead our eyes through the frame. It's a bit of a, a treasure hunt, and it's a mystery, and you're revealing key details, like where Jerry's nine millimeter is hidden upstairs. It's the place he's trying to go because he wants to murder them, and you're setting up things that might pay off down the road. And visually, the interior of this store was a super hard space to make people feel like they understood and you want to feel that there's danger lurking around every corner. I mean, these people are trapped inside. There's four gunmen with these powerful weapons, but outside there's a thousand cops who want to invade and murder them. If they throw tear gas into this store, this ammunition is going to go sky high and a whole block of Brooklyn with hundreds of families is going to go up in flames like we saw in Philadelphia with the move compound, or like we saw at Waco uh, in Texas, which incidentally were two of the police departments that Harvey Schlossberg, this visionary police psychologist, never trained. Those places ended in conflagrations. So we're working with this like deep human fear that this is gonna happen. And we have no footage from inside this hostage siege. And it's, you know, a great honor when people tell me, like, I felt like I was inside there with them. And all we had were these crime scene photographs that I discovered really late in the day. You know, a cop was like, hey, I got some pictures laying around, you know, you want to see them? And I'm like, oh, my God, he had 80 gorgeous black and white photographs that were pristine prints that we could push way in on. So you're always, it's like a treasure hunt. You're looking for these elements all along to try to tell a dramatic story. Right. And you're bringing up there Harvey Schlossberg, who, who was the police officer, who was the person to say, you know, let's try a different form. Let's try communication. Let's listen to what it is that, that led to this moment. And, you know, also led to the fact that it was a 47 hour standoff because, you know, because they were playing it in that way. But I think it's what's so fascinating about this story is it's not just him who comes in with that approach. Like you said, Jerry, the, the store owner, you know, had the opportunity, he had guns, he had ammunition, he knew where everything in that store was. And he chose, you know, not to have violence. There was no violence exerted towards the hostages who ended up being part of the situation. And there were just a lot of different instances of people of where violence could have happened in a different way, but it was pulled back. And, and I was so fascinated into your perspective on that and how you really wanted to capture this as a story that doesn't just say, here's one guy who suggested this, and this was the initial genesis of it. But actually there were so many different moments during this night and during this standoff, which also reacted in that same way, which was really, really fascinating to learn about. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there are all these moments in the story and thank you for not giving some of them away because they're super dramatic on screen, but where people who've been taught all their lives that violence is the answer and our role as a man is to dominate. And Jerry had a machine gun unit in the army and he's like, I'm gonna kill them all. You know, he doesn't, he holds his fire. You know, now I'm giving it away. Uh, but in a very heroic way. And people are amazed at the story. They're like, oh my God, this is one of the great hostage stories just because of how it ends, which is crazy. But there's also a moment when the cops probably would have normally really started shooting and created another whole tragedy. You know, you have 12 women and children that are in there, you know, their lives are at stake. And the crazy thing too, is that you have a thousand cops outside with sniper rifles, but surrounding them 
are another two or 3,000 people in the community that are furious at a legacy of cops acting like an occupying army in their neighborhood, which, you know, one officer even says, that's what we were. We threw the constitution out the window, you know? And that crowd out there at one point, you know, is ready to riot and lives will definitely be lost if they have to invade the store. So at all these important story points, I wanted to make clear that we face this, this primal moment of, will I react with emotion and violence or will I be able to do what Dr. Schlossberg taught people around the world? I'll be able to calm down, engage in words, let the other side know that I hear them, you know, active listening and not try to dominate the conversation, not try to put myself in a higher status and the person I'm talking to in a lower status. And it's amazing, you know, we all want to point the finger at cops for the violence that they sometimes perpetrate in our society. This is stuff we all need to learn. Anyone who's in a relationship with a significant other needs to learn how to let people know that you hear them so they just don't keep repeating what they're saying and ratcheting up the tension. Anyone who has a kid can definitely use hostage negotiating techniques to calm their kids down when they're being utterly irrational. So these are techniques we need to learn and even look at our involvement with Iraq and Afghanistan. We thought that pouring billions of dollars worth of troops and weapons into these societies was going to achieve something. But as people teach us, consent of the governed is the ultimate force multiplier. If people don't want you there. All you're doing with this dominance is building the resistance to you. When we talk to our kids with all this hostility and trying to dominate them, we're teaching them how to dominate, and they use that back on us. And things don't go so well. So, you know, it's exciting to have audiences telling us like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm gonna go try this at home, you know, with my kids. I mean, it's it's so interesting to hear you talk about all the details of, of this film because it is such a film that brings in so many different perspectives and voices and, and feels like it's very much about the dialogue and conversation that it starts after watching the film. So congratulations on, on everything with the movie. And thank you so much for sharing all of this. Really appreciate your time today, Stefan. Yeah, thank you for having me.